iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Okay, everybody, we're about to begin. Uh, please enjoy the trailer for the story of Anvil. All righty. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our moderator for this evening from VH1 Classics, That Metal Show. Please welcome Eddie Trunk. Thank you, thank you. How you guys doing, all right? Uh, in addition to being a co-host on That Metal Show, I've done a heavy metal radio show in this area for about 25 years. And I can honestly say, uh, just seeing that trailer again, gave me chills because I played Anvil when Anvil first came out and to see what's about to happen for this band I couldn't be more excited having been a longtime fan um, before we go any further though uh, do we have any folks that watch that metal show on VH1 Classic or what alright well first of all say hello to my two co-hosts back there Don Jameson and Jim Florentine hanging out and uh, we do want to let you know that this coming Saturday, when our new episode premieres at 11 o'clock, the two gentlemen that you just saw in that movie will be on set with us. So be sure to check that out. Anvil are our guests on this week's upcoming episode of That Metal Show. So make sure you check it out. 11 o'clock, the premiere this Saturday on VH1 Classic. Uh, so we're all really excited that this is happening for this great band that we've loved for a long time. And now other people are literally going to see what's essentially a 30-year overnight success story. We've all had these bands we've loved for decades say, whatever happened to, will they ever make it? Well, one is about to get rescued, and that is Anvil, thanks to this brilliant film. And I'd like to first bring out the man responsible for making this movie, and his story, in a lot of ways, is just as interesting as the story of Anvil themselves and how this movie even came to be. Uh, he's become a good friend of mine, and he's, again, made an absolutely amazing film. The director of Anvil, the story of Anvil, say hello to Mr. Sasha Gervasi. Come on out. And, uh, of course, the, the folks themselves, the two people that stuck together and are at the uh, heart of this entire story, a story that really is about perseverance and never giving up. It's really, truly amazing, and I give them all the credit in the world for that, as well as all the great music they've made over the years that a lot of people are going to discover for the first time through this film. Please say hello to, from Anvil, Rob Reiner and Lips. Come on out. And I think we're supposed to uh, take a seat and get right into it, so... Hello. Sasha has the very cool speaking voices you're, you're soon about to find out. As a matter of fact, Sasha, give everyone a little bit of your claim to fame beyond your brilliant filmmaking. Do it for us. Jaguar XJR, Rob Report, 1998, Car of the Year. Now, if you guys have ever heard my radio show, we talked about this. He's actually the voice of those TV commercials, which I have a lot of respect for as well. So. Thank you. Uh, Thank is you. that the reason why you guys decided to do a film with him? Because he has a voice like that? Is that what really did it? Uh, no, he's just teabag. <laughs> That's another well, story. Well, tell us a little bit about that. I think that the story of how this film got made and your connection to Sasha and how this all happened is just amazing. So 
I guess Lip, start out with telling us why he's T-Bag and how T-Bag came back in your life decades later to make this film. Give that backstory. Quite fascinatingly, um, Sasha came into our change room when we were playing in the Marquee Club in London, England, when we had gone there in 1982. And he was just a young little guy and excited as hell. Knew every metal song ever written. Great kind of person to find out, well, what's going on in England? And we really became really interested in what he had to say. And he invited us out to walk around London and show us around. And we thought, geez, this guy's so cool, man. Hey, you want to come on tour? And we brought him on tour to Canada, uh, across Canada with all kinds of Canadian um, small hockey rinks and stuff. Taught him the good and bad about being on the road. And uh, he went off and uh, carried on in his life, finished school, got back in touch with me 20 years later, and here we are. <laughs> Sasha, uh, for you, what was it that, after being disconnected from these guys for about 20 years, that said, I wonder whatever happened to Anvil, let me look them up. What, yeah, what I, spurred I, I, it? I, I've been trying to work it out, like what, <laughs> I really have no idea. I'm sort of having like a waking dream right now. I don't know what's going on, it's so weird because when I was 15 and I met them that night at the Marquee, I was so blown away by this band's performance. It's, if you weren't there, it's hard to, to describe. But what happened was, you know, they just blew everyone's minds at the Marquee when they played. And uh, there was 250 people in there, amongst them Def Leppard, Motorhead, all these other bands. And by the end, like, people were in silence. And that night, Lemmy from Motorhead asked Anvil to open for them on, on their upcoming tour the following year. And I was, just, I was just so stunned. I went backstage and I was like... Dudes, like I'm your number one fan in England, and um, I took them around, like Lip said. And they, I mean, the thing about it was the reason I got back in touch was because of what it was like back then. I was 15, 16 years old, and like, imagine a 16 year old kid getting the experience of his life. These guys took me out on the road, like on several tours with them, right? So I'm like, it was like almost famous, but without having to do any of the writing assignments, it was way better. And I was just basically on the road with these guys, like hanging out with my favorite band. And the best thing was, I, I really wanted to play drums. So I sat behind Rob Reiner every night and I would watch him play. And the best part of it was, right, he would do all this stuff. Like he had just turned down the gig playing drums for Ozzy because he wouldn't abandon Anvil, you know? And so I'm sitting watching this guy play drums and trying to figure out how the fuck does he do it? Like, and like, I remember Rob would turn around and look at me like he had this look on his face like you will never ever be able to do this, you know. And it was just so fucking amazing. So for me, it was like the most incredible gift that they gave me. And I never really forgot them. Like, unlike many of the bands that I'd met at that time, you know, some of the bigger bands, they were kind of like, you know, fuck off, kid. You know, you, we don't really we're not really interested in having you around. But these guys were more interested in what their real fans had to say than the rock stars, you know, kind of coming around to kind of, you know, kiss their asses. And that was what got me about these guys. And so I never forgot the man because they were so cool to me when I was a kid. And 20 years later, I, I, I don't know what happened. All the bands that they influenced, Metallica, Anthrax, Slayer, Megadeth, had obviously gone on to sell you know, millions and millions of albums. And Anvil had never really made it you know, in, on that level. And I didn't really understand what had happened. So one night in 2005, I went on the internet and I Googled Anvil. And I discovered that there were 10 albums the band had made that I'd never even heard of, right? So I like, and I start going through the photos and they had just played a show at like the Horseshoe Tavern somewhere in Quebec, you know, and they were still going. And I was like, what is going on? Like, how can they still be going? And I wrote to the website and an hour later I got an email back from Lips and it was just like a week later he flew out to LA 
And within five minutes of getting in my car, man, it was like 20, 20 years had become like 20 minutes. It was unbelievable. And we just reconnected again. And it was just the most beautiful reconnection. It was like, imagine if you could step back into your childhood, you know, the most golden time that you remember. And everything and everyone is exactly the same as you remember it. It was that experience for me. You know, it was the same enthusiasm, the same kind of crazy passion. And these guys really believed, you know, that they were still if it was just if you could just believe hard enough you know that moment would come for you you know and there was something incredibly beautiful about it you know some would say childish you know but the magical thinking of childhood it was so engaging and uh, i was just so captivated with their their belief that i just spontaneously said i think i had better make a movie so <laughs> that's what happened one of one of the parts of this story that i love so much that i i can't i don't think can be stressed enough is we've all probably have the opportunity to meet some fans, uh, meet some rock stars that we've all looked up to. And a lot of times, let's face it, we've been disappointed. They've given us the brush off. They don't have time for us. We're just a fan. Standing over in the corner is someone from another band who's far more important. Think about this. And this says so much about Lips and Rob. If that night in England when these guys were really at the top of, you know, the, the height of their popularity, there were, Rob, you were telling me, there were other people in that dressing room that night. There yeah. were members of Def Leppard. Pete, yeah. Pete Wave from, uh, Pete from, Wave from, from UFO. UFO. Uh, guys from Schenker. Remember the year we're talking in the early 80s here, right? 82. Gary Barden, the singer of 82. Of, uh, okay. If, if like a lot of bands today they would have gone right past their crazy 15, 16-year-old fan who was a nobody at the time and gone only wanted to hang with the celebrity crowd in the backstage. Think about this. We would not be sitting here right now because Sasha would have went away dejected and pissed off yeah. and like, ah, uh, you know, never become a roadie, never gotten involved with the group. And never, 20 years later, made a film about Anvil. They would have been an afterthought in his mind. So that, to me, says all you need to know. If you don't have the pleasure of knowing Lips and Rob, that's all you need to know about these guys is that's how they feel about their fans back then and even still now. And it, I think it, does, it, says it doesn't a lot. change. In fact, Don or Jim, what, Jim, don't you have a story about Lips in the comedy club? You've got to tell that story, dude. Come here. Come on, this is like a story. This is how they are, and this is like recent, right? When was this story? I was, uh, I did a show up in Toronto like about a year ago, and I was big fans of Lips, and this was way before the movie and everything, and he wound up coming out to the show, and after the show, he was hanging out backstage with his wife, and he had this Anvil Metal on Metal shirt on. I go, wow, that's a cool shirt. And we only knew each other for five minutes. I go, would you, I, I got to get that. He goes, you don't have it? I go, no. He goes, I'll give it to you. I go, no, seriously. He goes, no, seriously, I'll give it to you. He took it off his back and gave it to me backstage. And the best part was his wife is looking like, what the fuck are you doing? You just met this creepy guy with dirty jokes on stage, and you're giving him your shirt. And you gave it right off my back. It was amazing, man. So, I mean, that's, that's what it's, I mean, where did that come from? What was, how was it instilled in you guys from the earliest point that to always treat your fans like that? We're yeah, fans. Absolutely. We're fans ourselves. And I think probably the biggest lesson that I ever got in my, in, in all my years, I was 20 years old. I went to see Van Halen and Black Sabbath. Black Sabbath were treated us so well. I mean, I was, I could not believe how Tony and Geezer were such nice guys. It was amazing. But they had a support band called Van Halen, right? 
Well, we all ended up in a, in a club, and Mike Anthony, I went up and I went to congratulate him, and he shows me his boot, and he says, see this boot? These boots were $1,500. Wouldn't you like to be in them? <laughs> nice. At that moment, it changed and made me realize I will never, ever be like that. That really, as far as I was concerned, that just, I was smashed. That really destroyed my, my thoughts of, is this what rock musicians are like? Can't be. I know if I ever make it, I will never be like that, no matter what happens. So that's, that, these are the things that, that make that happen. And Rob, you've said that you were somewhat, when this idea of Sasha first doing this film about Anvil came on your radar, what were your thoughts? Because you were a little bit skeptical, would be the right word, about who would care about it and if it would, was worth doing? No, I, I, I was totally into the fact that the movie was going to be made. I thought it was a cool idea. But yeah, I, first I thought, hey, nobody knows who we are. Who, who the hell would even care to see this? Or, or would? That was my only th thing. But uh, Sasha said, uh, everybody will care. Well, and I just, uh, I just, what was, right. what was well, the reason I wanted to make the movie is because you know these guys when they were fourteen made a pact to rock together forever, right? Here they are forty years later and they're really doing it, right? To them it's normal, but to most people that's insane. Like who would do that, right? That's crazy. But there's something so powerful about that. And I said to Rob, but listen, dude, this is a movie. It's about dedication and perseverance. Like Eddie said, it's about not giving up and sticking together. And Rob was like, okay, well, why would I give up? You know, the fact that it didn't even occur to him that there was an alternative is why I made the movie. Because it's just what they do. It's who they are. You know? when, you, when you guys see this film, and you'll be able to see it everywhere in a matter of a couple of weeks as it starts to roll out through theaters, that's one of the things that I, I'm really excited about. Because if you've listened to me on my radio show, I've been talking about it forever. Sasha's been on a number of times. Uh, they'll all be on this Friday on my Q104 show, so you can listen to that as well. But, you know, I've been, I've been screaming from the rooftops, TV, radio, whatever, about this film, and now I'm, we're all happy that people are finally going to be able to see what it is that we're talking about. But one of the things that's interesting, Rob, about you and the movie is that there are times... This, this story is very much about the dedication and perseverance, but Rob, during the filming of the movie, even starts to show some cracks where you say, this has finally got to go for me after 30 years or whatever... I've got to see some growth. Something's got to happen. So my question to you is, if this didn't happen, if this movie didn't happen, and this whole renewed interest in Anvil, or interest for the first time in Anvil didn't happen, how much longer was the perseverance going to last on you? Were, were, you, starting to, were you getting close to abandoning the ship? Because it seems like it at some points in the movie. Absolutely not. This, this band is my uh, lifeblood. It's my identity. And uh, it's a, a mission that needs to be completed. So I was going nowhere. And what about you, Lips? Were there ever points where you said, I, I just don't know if I can... You know, because you, you see in the film, you're getting pressure from your family. You're, you're not playing to a lot of people. I mean, the, the challenges are there. You're both working day jobs. I mean, was there a point where you ever started to say, man, I better figure something else out? No, you, you can't because we've, we've always felt that there's been a level of success and we've lived, we've lived it in, in the sense that... Even though we were abandoned by, by record companies uh, initially it, after the first three albums, we took it upon ourselves and, and, and ran the ship ourselves for another further 10 albums. So quitting just didn't seem like, why? I've done 10 albums, I'll do 10 more. You know, it's, it, just doesn't, it just doesn't come to mind. What I love too is there's such a perception 
about uh, bands. Us as fans, I think that a lot of people, and I hear this all the time from my radio audience, people say, well, if you've made a couple records in your career, then you're a rock star for life. That's what you do. You must not ever have to work. You must not ever have to, your bills are paid. You've successfully made two, three records. They're in print. This CD exists. And I get that all the time. And people say, well, whatever happened? And, and you see what really goes on in this film. You see that you guys, you know, work day jobs. You, the, the band is your passion and it's something that you won't let go. And I, it's so inspiring to see kind of the curtain pulled back on the illusion that some bands may want to project like, you know, we're big bad rock stars. We don't do anything. You see that what's the challenge that's involved in being an artist that's persevered for so long and what you have to do to keep on keeping on. And you almost have to work to fuel your love of the music is really what it comes down to. It's, it's all balance. I mean, what it really comes down to, it's just a, 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 a case of balancing your life. I'm, I'm able to go to a part-time job and deal with that, but the only reason that I'm able to deal with it is because I have the band. I couldn't imagine having to, like most people go, they go, how, why don't you quit? Well, how many people hate their job? I love my job, why should I quit my job? <laughs> um, it's just, you know, it, 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 this is a very rare, a rare thing that we're getting, that we're gonna see in this movie is, the fact is there is no real glamorous aspect of it. There's 99.9% .9 of bands never make it. And most of them live this way. And nobody would want to show that or put light on the fact that it's really brutal out there. Everybody wants to show that they're big rock stars, that they're riding around in limousines. They want to put this facade. This is without a facade. This is the mask taken off. This is the real shit. It's, it's tough. It's not easy. And we're getting a lot of... A lot of people are commending us for being brave enough to show this. You know, it's, it's amazing. A lot of successful musicians, a lot of non-successful musicians, they're, they're coming up to us and saying, you know, this is the truth about what it really is. 99% of bands don't make it. You know, even those that do, how many sustain a career? You know, so it's like, I think the honesty of the film is something that is taking people by surprise. But that was always the, the thing from the beginning. These guys are so, as they are, you know what I mean? Like, we just had, that was really the chief quality of the movie I knew, was just all I had to do as a director was just record. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Because they're just so themselves. And whatever you think of heavy metal or don't think of heavy metal, it's kind of irrelevant because they, they just have it all on their sleeves, you know? And they just, they're really going for it, man. And it's painful and brutal at times, the movie. But at times, it's, I think, hopefully hopeful by the end. Because uh, yeah, without question, it's, it's incredibly inspirational. Anybody who's persevered at trying to make something happen. I think that's a great way that we can set up another clip. clip. We have a couple more. Just so you guys know what's going to happen here, we have a couple more clips to show you from the film. And then when we're done with the clips and done talking amongst ourselves here, we're uh, going to turn it over to anyone in the audience that may have questions for Sasha, Rob, or Lips. But if we can, let's take a look at another clip from Anvil, the story of Anvil. This is where we yeah. learned how to play. Yeah, this is where, <laughs> this is a lot of the uh, beginnings of our whole friendship or relationship, the band, life, it all happened here. Every day on the way home from school, I hear this blasting music coming from that window right there. <laughs> Whoever's playing to this music is playing tight. It's a drummer. It's fucking, it's like sick shit's coming out of there, right? Anyway, I meet this guy in my biology class and he goes, hey man, I'm gonna get this guy Rob Reiner. He lives over on the, at the corner of Yeomans. 
And all, all I could see was this speaker that was sitting in the window and the heavy music, like either Sabbath or, 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 or Grand Funk or, or, or Cactus. A lot of Cactus. The guy really liked Cactus. And I go, who could possibly like Cactus? <laughs> I mean, you know, all day long, that would go on, all day long. Like, I mean, that was a perfect example where we were driving from one location and we got, we'd just been to the Jewish cemetery because we'd, we'd shot something there. And then Lips, as we're traveling on convoy with the crew, says, hey, let's stop off at Rob's house. So we get out and we just film this thing. And, and then someone sees the crew and drives by. And it was just like constant, constant craziness all the time. Like, we were just going, thank you, God, all the time. Rob, what, what's it like for you to look at, the, at these clips? This film now... For people that don't know, I mean, you actually shot this in 2006, was it filmed? 2006 and seven, yeah. Six and seven, so it's a year or two since you actually, this actually took place, what we're seeing in the movie. But now, with everything about to unfold and seeing these clips, is it almost like you're looking at another band when you look up on that screen? Or do you, you know, what's the connection for you? How do you feel about it? With that particular clip, or in general? Just the film in general and about to what's, no, what's about to happen it's, for the band. It's just, uh, for me, it's all cool. It's just showing... Uh, our whole life and our friendship with Lips and the band and I personally like it all. I, I don't really what more to say, you know. For me it's showing the world what we're really all about. That's the way it looks to me, you know. I'm kinda like how we look on screen, you know? I think we look pretty good. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> yeah, dude. Where and where was do you remember where was and when was this incredibly strong bond between you two guys formed? Because there have been other members in and out of Anvil over the decades. Obviously, I mean, was it a case where you guys went into a basement one day and ex cut yourselves and rubbed your blood on each other's arm? I mean, where was it that this perseverance and this bond was made? Well, I think it was made when we first had uh, when we first had our first jam, and uh, after that we were walking home, and I, I looked over at Lips and uh, I said, "Hey, man, uh, let's make a band," and that was it. And ever since then, here we are. So there was no real blood, but uh, it was just a commitment. No, that was 40 years ago. Four zero it was years ago. It was simple. It was without any thought. We just said, let's make a band. And here we are, 30 years later. But you know that so many bands... Who well, we, had had a, we had a common thing. You know, we, we love the same uh, music. And that's what has kept us going all these years. You know, we're, we're in sync with the art. This whole thing is about music and art for us guys. And that's why we're still here. It's still honest, and we're focused on what we love to do, which is write the most uh, innovative, powerful metal that we think is good for us, and that's what we do. Now, Sasha had mentioned that you had actually turned down an opportunity to, to tour with Ozzy. Yeah, well, listen, every band wants a Rob Reiner. <laughs> Absolutely, if you've okay. heard the man play, that's okay. true. And. Uh, what can I say to that, you know? But uh, this is all about Anvil and, and me and Lips. And I mean, this was something that didn't make it into the film that we tried to sort of get in, but at a certain point we didn't need it. It's like, at a certain point, you know, Rob was asked to join Ozzy and Lips was asked by Motorhead after Fast Eddie Clark left Motorhead, Lips was asked to join and, and play guitar for Motorhead. And both of these guys separately were like, you know what, I'm not gonna ditch my buddy, I'm not gonna ditch my band. And so, to me, that shows the values, you know what I mean? They wouldn't give up, they wouldn't give it up. And uh, the, the fam your families are featured in the film as well, uh, some of them proclaiming that 
the band should give it up and that it's over. You'll see that in the movie when you see it. Awesome. Uh, what what is your what are your families thinking now about this movie and about this new discovery from so many people about Anvil and your music? Well, my mother keeps going. So you're making money yet? <laughs> are you? <laughs> no, <laughs> none of us are. But I don't do it for money. I never did anyway. <laughs> Clearly, but I mean, uh, it would well, be nice, right? Well, my family, I have a rock and roll family. You know, my wife's been with me since uh, the beginning of this band, right from day one. My son's uh, an amazing drummer. He's in a rock band. And uh, they love all this, you know. They're, they're behind it. They've been behind it since day one. And nothing, they're just loving what's happening. And you'll see one of Rob's other great uh, passions in the film when you see it is painting. And you have a rather interesting painting on the, uh, on the wall on the way down to your basement, which I found really interesting. Tell everybody a little bit about that. Uh, well, it's a, it's a unique piece that Lips actually talked me into doing. It was, it, was, it was all his doing is why I painted it, you know? He said, be, I'd, be, I'd be really... Should I tell him what exactly it is? What? Well, what it was is he... Rob, yeah, Rob is a bit, a bit crazy, you know? Like, I got to admit, but in, in, it, that's what I love most about him. He goes into, he goes into a washroom in Germany and photographs a shit in the toilet. Yeah, I mean, doesn't that doesn't everyone do that? He shows me the photograph, shows me the photograph and I go, you should paint this, man. No one would ever think of doing an oil painting of shit in the toilet, man. This will blow the world away. And he goes, hey, maybe you got something there. And he did it. <laughs> and you can see it in the film when you see Anvil, the story of Anvil. It's like, got texture. It does. It's a great, it's a hysterical moment. Um, I think we have, we have one more clip or two more? Two more clips? How many more clips do we have? Let's, well, whatever we have, let's see Roll one something. more right now if we can. Another clip from Anvil, the story of Anvil. We can talk about it if you want, if it's interesting. I don't know. Mo Pences, home of a corned beef sandwich. I think the first song we ever wrote was called Thumb Hang. Yeah. We were writing, we we're trying to write a song about the Spanish Inquisition. We learned about it in history class. They would hang people up by their thumbs if they didn't take on Catholicism. So, you know, I, I figured, hey, there, there's, a, there's a cool subject, thumb hang. Thumbs will twist. Can you resist? Thumb hang. Fuck, we should be doing that again. So uh, is and, Thumb uh, Hang coming yeah, back? Are actually, we getting a yeah. 2009 Thumb Hang? Absolutely, yeah. We're going to uh, record it actually shortly. It's going to be on the movie soundtrack CD, I believe. <laughs> thumb, can, I mean, listen we, to we, the lyrics, we, we, we were, we Thumbs were. will twist. Can you resist? Beware the names on the Inquisitor's list. That is genius. <laughs> Poetic genius. I, and that's the thing I think that we really, on a serious note, have. To, it's fun to look at this film and to, and to laugh and, and whatever. But for... Those of us that have grown up with the music of Anvil, it's very easy to look at this. I had a, a friend of mine who had heard about this recently. He said, well, this is a mockumentary. This isn't a real band. This didn't really happen, right? So people that aren't in the know may not know that, but you guys have made some great music over the years. This is no joke. This is no Thank spinal you. tap. And I would imagine that what would be most rewarding for you to come out of this film 
is an appreciation and rediscovery of the music you've made, right? And to get your music out there. Absolutely. But, but you have to understand that the movie wouldn't be here if it hadn't been for the music. The music that's what got brought, us here That's what brought Sasha to the show at the Marquee, is the music. So I think, I think that the, th this will be a great way for people to be introduced to the band. Um, and there is a comedic part about Anvil, but it, it's really, like I said, balance. Um, there are some really, really serious subjects, songs like Winged Assassins or um, Future Wars or Free as the Wind. There's a, a lot of much more serious stuff, but you have to understand that the way that I, we felt particularly about the genre of music is that most of our audience is a, a male audience. So we did things to to appease that, to make the to give people something, to give the guys something to have a good uh, chuckle over. And when I would come up with really, really intricate, insane riffs, I'd give them really crazy lyrics like knee-high and hair-pie, <laughs> uh, pussy poison. Um, show me your tits. Show me your tits, back-waxed. <laughs> I mean, well, you uh, just lost about 50 people there, guys. No, no, just um, kidding. <laughs> But it, it's weird. In order to stay, in order to stay underground, because with heavy metal you don't want to sell out. So, like as an example, we had a song called "Backwaxed," and it was supposed to come out on the Forged in Fire album, which was our third album. And I pulled it from the album because I thought it, it was too vulgar. The actual song itself was probably a hit single. <laughs> but what, I, what did I do? Put it in, pull it out, slap it on her back, and watch it spout. She's being backwaxed. That's not going to make the radio. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And it, that's always what it's been like with Anvil. Because like, when you first saw the show, you had this really heavy music. But then he would come out in a bondage harness and play his Flying V with a dildo, right? So you didn't even know what was going on. You were like laughing as hard as you were banging your head. There was always this circus element with Anvil. And like in the movie, that duality that exists in the band, we explored. It was like, look, the spectrum of Spinal Tap, you mentioned it briefly. Obviously, Spinal Tap is, is their favorite movie. You know, they love, and mine too, I love Spinal Tap. So what happened was, we just thought, you know, Rob's name, Rob Reiner, is the same as the director of Spinal Tap. With for those, two Bs. With two Bs, for those who don't know. So we were never going to be able to avoid the specter of Spinal Tap. It's guys in their 50s ha going for it one last shot at rock and roll. For, you know. So rather than run away from it, we just decided, you know what, fuck it. We're going to embrace it. Not only are we going to embrace it, in the scene that you saw just there, obviously for those people who know Spinal Tap well, I got them to talk about the first song they wrote in a diner, and in Spinal Tap, you see Nigel and David in a diner talking about it. So the whole idea was to create for the audience uh, sort of the illusion that this is like Spinal Tap. And what happens, I think, 40 minutes into the film, for those who've seen it, is the film changes dramatically. It goes from, you know, ha, 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 the real Spinal Tap, into a really powerful emotional story, you know, one hopes if you, if you connect with it. And, and, and that's what it was really about. So in a way, Spinal Tap was like our Trojan horse, you know what I mean? We needed the comedy to get in there so that people could kind of be, oh, this is really just funny. But ultimately, it's not, you know. But Anvil was always both, and the film is both. And I think that multiple people have said to me, I was laughing and crying at the same time. And, and it's those two extreme emotions thrown together that really is what Anvil's all about. Do we have one more clip? I think we have one more. 
Okay, let's get the last clip on, and then we'll talk about that a little bit. And then if you guys have questions for Lips, Rob, or, of course, Sasha, uh, we'll turn it over to you. Okay. Lawyer. You're a lawyer. Okay. Listen, you played in front of fuck all people here tonight. You were screwed. You had a shit manager. Listen, let's be honest about this. Right. You, Anvil should be playing in front of, I don't know, a thousand minimum people every night in Europe. That's my opinion. Yeah, you're probably... Given your reputation, given your reputation, you should be playing in front of a thousand people every night, and you are not. Now, you've got to ask yourself, why are you not doing that? Well, I've been asking myself that for 20 years. Because well, I, I, you've I, I, got I, a well, shit I, manager. Yeah, I can answer that in, in, in one word. Two words. Two words. Yes. We haven't got good management. <laughs> so, did you ever call that guy? You gave me, I saw you holding his card, Lips. Did you ever call him? Uh, we called card. him to clear the to clear the use of him in the film, and he was a real bastard. We had like, we had like an hour and a half of footage of him, man. I mean, we have th we had three hundred and twenty hours of footage for an eighty-minute movie. Like that guy was an amazing guy. He was called Adam Lippier, a, a German, a, an English guy living in uh, I think Berlin. It was a German lawyer, an old Anvil fan, and he got drunk and came down from his corporate head office, and he was so appalled to see Anvil playing in front of eleven people that he drunkenly offered himself as manager. And then at a certain point, he, he offered his kids college education fund to, to, to continue the tour. And we're just, I mean, this is all on film. And we're just like, this guy is out of his mind. I will give you my children's money. I will give it to you. You know, it's like on and on. But you know what? In the end, the card, he lost. And we, it took us a year and a half to find him. We didn't know who he was. We got him to sign a release. And we had to get like a German investigator to track down English people, English corporate lawyers in Germany. We finally found him and he gave his permission. But it was like, there's a story behind almost everything that happens in the movie. It just went on and on. But like, as you're filming that scene, you're going, did I script this? Like, it's just the lines just kept coming out. I mean, that was what was happening with Anvil. Uh, there's a lot that's going to be happening with this band and this film in the coming weeks and months. Uh, I guess to kind of close out, th do, is there another clip or are we done on the clips? There's one, one more, more clip. One more. Let's take a look at the last clip then and we'll, uh, we'll get it over to you guys. We missed our train. Bye. That wasn't done correctly once again. Matema, oh, we are here from a, 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 a imperfect time, imperfect time. And then me and Mr. the train, I have to pay the double. Oh, porco Dio. I was so, 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 so angry. Okay, listen. You call MasterCard, cancel your payment. Listen, they do that. My mama, I, my, I, I, MasterCard paid for to go, for to back. For to back is again available. For to go, no, change it. <laughs> <laughs> no one understood. Including me. Including the band. I mean, she was Swiss Italian, okay? Living in the mountains. I have spoken to Swiss people and Italian people, neither of whom understand what the fuck she's talking about. It went, it, this tour was unbelievable. It was like a demented monkey throwing darts at a board. We, one night we were in Prague, the next night we were in like Belgium. I mean, the amount they spent on petrol. I mean, it's like as we're filming this, me and the crew are just, we couldn't believe what was going on. I just to tell one story. My cameraman, Chris Seuss, on the second day of filming, we were in Germany and he, he locked me in a hotel room, my, my own cameraman. He turned the lock. And he turned around towards me and he said, you are not leaving this room until you tell me the truth. I need to know if these people are actors. 
Like, he could, my own crew did not believe what I was filming. At that point, I thought, I think we have something. And you, and you guys have to understand something. At the top, I was joking about how Sasha did that voiceover for, for Jag, Jaguar, as I call it. And he legitimately is the voice of that guy. But Sasha is an accomplished guy in Hollywood. He wrote the film The Terminal with Tom Hanks in it. Uh, he, he said on my radio show, and I'm not revealing anything he didn't say on the show, turned down writing Harry Potter okay, for the, for the screen. So you... Well, I mean, it was completely uncommercial. <laughs> That's what I told my agent. But you, as a, as a guy who has some credentials in Hollywood and a successful career, when you're standing there in Prague with these two guys, what are you thinking? Are you thinking, I just blew my career and I'm done? The exact opposite. I'm thinking, thank you, God, every moment. I just knew because it was like the tour was such a disaster. And w I mean, even they, I mean, you guys at certain points when you weren't really in it, I mean, you really, it was funny at times. I mean, it was so bad, it was funny. And other times it was great, you know. So from our perspective, we were just like thinking it was wonderful. Because we knew it would have a happy ending. We just knew it. You know what I mean? Were you confident, Lips? You were confident this was all going to work totally out? I was totally confident. I, I mean, on the onset of the tour, I knew it was going to be a rough one. But I didn't really care because it's a, it's a, a lot of fun. I mean, we, there was enough money to have paid for... There was enough money to have, that was generated to have paid for everything to happen. Uh, from the gigs themselves, and most and all the gigs went down. We broke even, and man, did we have a great time! <laughs> I mean, there were certain times that there was one time where we actually had to stop shooting. We had two cameras going. We were at the Monsters of Transylvania Rock Festival, and Rob Reiner was doing his drum solo called oh, White Reiner. Here Rhino. we go. Okay. Well, I got it, dude. It was a, a major moment. So he's doing his drum solo, and Lips comes running off stage, and he drops down behind the back line, behind the martial amps, and he's on the floor writhing around, and he's holding his back, right? So I think, you know, he's had some kind of spinal injury. And anyway, so I didn't quite know what had happened. Turns out, he sort of arranges himself, runs back on stage. Turns out that Lips had sung so hard that his hemorrhoids had popped out during the drum solo, right? When my crew discovers what's happened, they just stop filming. They just both, I turn around, two cameramen are on their backs with their legs in the air, uncontrollably laughing. Because it's like, we're at the Monsters of Transylvania Rock Festival and the lead singer's hemorrhoids popped out during White Rhino. It's like, are we on acid? Like, what the fuck is going on? It was like, that's what it was like. Like, you could, I mean, I couldn't, I, I don't know what to say. Well, it's, on it's that in the extras. Note, I don't think there's a better way to set up the audience for some questions, because I don't know how you follow that up. Um, so, because this is going out on a podcast, you guys, whoever wants to ask a question, raise your hand, I'll go to you, and then I'm going to repeat your question into the microphone so that everyone else can hear it. So, do we have any questions for anybody in the KISS shirt? Stand up, sir. Okay, the question was, just so everybody else can hear it, why do you feel that other bands you came up with went on to greater success than you did? They had the machine behind them, plain and simple. Um, we, we were abandoned by our original label, which was a, a, an independent label in, in Canada, and we came out at, at the time that the birth of heavy metal was happening in America. Most of the labels and everything that was going on at that particular time were more interested in what was happening 
in their in their own country in the United States. Coming from Canada, it was like, well, you guys are kind of outsiders, and weren't you part of the British wave of metal anyway? So we kind of slipped in between the cracks. So, and we had to take do it all by ourselves. Whatever whatever we did from that point on was done virtually on our own. Going into the studio, getting the getting the guy who owns the studio. T- to do the thing for free until we could pay them back once we sold the and licensed the stuff out, and that's how we continued. And we—that's how we—that's why. And when you haven't got the big, huge machine behind you, you're not going to have the clout to get you to buy you onto tours, to get your records into all the stores, to publicize you. So you stay underground. That's why. Any other questions in the back, sir? You know, I, well, I let me repeat it so that yeah. everyone can hear it. Um, so, the, so the gentleman asked the question that he had seen the film a year ago, loved it, and was wondering if you sensed that the film was being made strictly as a documentary or more to appeal to a broad audience. Sasha, go ahead. Well, I think that you know, I just you know went on my instinct. I made the film just from a place of I love these guys, and I just I mean they're obviously incredible characters, and I thought they were very cinematic, and I thought that. I wasn't really thinking about what the appeal would be, but, but what, as, it, as it did happen, I, I went and I got this incredible producer called Rebecca Yeldum who had produced The Kite Runner and Motorcycle Diaries, someone who absolutely hated heavy metal, to be honest, but yet who understood the themes of the story. And I think together we both appreciated that if the film came together in the right way, there was a possibility that audiences well beyond heavy metal um, would respond to it simply because it's just about people, you know, like whatever you think of their leather jackets and long hair or whatever ultimately the movie's really about the f- their families, you know, and the struggle and who doesn't have a struggle, who doesn't have some kind of dream that they're yearning for and aspiring to, so in that sense I think there was a consciousness that there was a possibility for it, but you know at a certain point you can't really think about the audience you just have to think about what's truthful and what you believe in and just do it, and so we were really operating on instinct, I think after the fact you know, it became clear to us in the audience response. And, and look, when, when we put the movie together, we really didn't know how people were going to respond. But when we went to Sundance, not this year, but last year, you know, I remember we standing outside the auditorium. It was like 650 people in there. You know, I mean, your film can play and it can be total silence at the end of the day. You know what I mean? Because that's how it can happen. You know, as it turned out, we got standing ovations at every single screening that we did. And, and we were, I think, a little bit overwhelmed by the response. I mean, it was... Yeah, <clears throat> I was blown away, but I, at that point, I knew that we had magic. But we it, also have magic in the room, and his name is Chris Jericho. <laughs> Jericho. Chris Jericho. Is. The world-famous wrestler. Ladies and gentlemen, come on. A fellow Canadian for Anvil. <laughs> yeah. and if, you don't, and if you don't like the film, Jericho's going to kick Jericho's your ass gonna afterwards. Kill you. So make sure you like he it. Will take, come on, Jericho, question for the boys. The question, hold on. There is a visual there. The question from Jericho is why do they call you lips? You want me to do it again? Yeah, on the microphone. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Please explain the meaning of the lyrics for Butterbuss Jericho. Well, it was was a twist. It was a twist. It it was a twist on 
Let's tell him again. The lyrics turkey. to what? Wait, tell him again. The lyrics to? You're describing the lyrics to? Well, he's wondering where the title came from, I think. Of what the, song? Butter Bust Jerky. Okay. <laughs> and it was a twist on Butterball Turkey. <laughs> like a clever thought, twist. Butter Bust Jerky. Right on. Put the, put your, dip your fingers in the butter. Spread it all across her chest. In between one another, you know what she likes best. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. It's been lovely. <laughs> we'll be leaving right now through the back door. Uh, more questions. Sir in the blue shirt. Go ahead. Uh, my question is for Tanya um, and, and, and Rob. It, you had mentioned in the press that when Mel and I had served as sort of templates for the film, and it was actually the film that inspired you to, to start directing. That as someone who stuck in the Elmo combo in Toronto at the age of 12 with the Anvil, much as you did at the, the Mark II Club, Well, I think it's I think I think it's two withnels, isn't it? Really, two. Withnels. Yeah, I mean, the, the, trying to try to repeat what. Okay, he so asked he's talking. Can. He's mentioned a film called Withnail and I, which was written and directed by Bruce Robinson, who some of you will know. Bruce Robinson wrote The Killing Fields, um, amongst many other things. He wrote How to Get Ahead in Advertising. A brilliant, brilliant screenwriter, an amazing guy. Um, and Bruce, I met when I was really young, and I gave him my first script to read. And, and Bruce. Had, you know, this film with Nell and I that came out in 1986 in the UK, I remember going to see it, and it was as if someone had peered into my life. You know, I was living four houses away from where Bruce had lived with Viv McCarroll, who was the character the movie was based on, in Albert Street in Camden. I was doing tons of drugs. I was, like, you know, having pretensions of grandeur and thinking I was reading Byron and Shelley and doing heroin and think I was really thinking I was tremendously interesting. But the truth was I was just another drugged-up fuck-up. You know what I mean? But so the with Nell and I is really about this, these two... You know, unemployed actors who live in a squat in Camden in the late 60s, and they have nothing. And it's it, it, it there is a similar a, a thematic similarity in that it's really I think the film explores the nature of male friendship. You know, what it means to really have a friend, to really have a good friend who's with you through thick and thin. And I think that the difference between the two films is that Lips and Rob at the end of Anvil clearly are, are together. They have been forever. They will stay together forever. With Nell and Marwood are two separate characters. They go in different directions. One ascends to sort of the higher realm of, of I guess, a, a new world and success, while the other, with Nell, is sort of stuck, you know, desperately anguishing to, to, to be in that world and unable for whatever his own reasons to get there. So, but the parallel has always been there. And um, Bruce Robinson, I think, has even remarked on it himself. So... I, um, it was really the, the reason why I started to become a director and ultimately when I met Bruce originally in 1986 he said you know if you're going to direct your first film make sure it's something you truly truly care about and make sure it's something that tr you are only the only person in the world who could direct that film and so I think that that applies to Anvil and you feel that spirit you know when you see it with Nail it's, it's so heart wrenching and, and, and hilarious and ridiculous and strange and, 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 and crazy and, and emotional and I think that all of those things exist within Anvil. I kept waiting for Uncle Monty to come, to come out any minute. <laughs> well, yeah, Uncle Monty, yeah. You should go and see with Nell and I, all of you, if you haven't, because it's a really um, amazing Another film. question. Sir, be right behind the guy in the blue shirt. Go ahead. Uh, the question is, good one. What's next for Anvil now that this movie's coming out? New music, what, touring, what do you have coming? Well, yeah, we yeah, plan yeah. to plan to go out and uh, and do what we call the Anvil Experience, where the movie will play, and then we come out and play immediately right after in the movie theater, which is a feeling of 
you're in the movie, but now you're in a concert hall, which is something that's very new and innovative, and we plan to do that for a bit. And uh, we've got uh, we've now we've got uh, great management and great booking agents, and we're about to out to go out and you've got the machine you've got the the machine you've got the machine you've talked about that you haven't had they finally got the machine after 30 years i mean mean, something and something else for those that have not seen the film what what lips is talking about and it's going to be so effective to see the movie if you're lucky enough like this where they come out and do some songs at the end because not to give anything away but the way the film ends is very very it's great and to have them take the stage out of the way this film ends is going to be really powerful. It's going to be really cool. It, it, it makes people feel that they're in the movie because suddenly they you, you, you want to see the band hopefully by the end of the film. Then they come out and it's like they've jumped out of the screen and there you are, the audience, making it a happy ending for them. And we did it in London. We, we, we sold out two shows at the Shepherd's Bush Empire and we showed the film and then the band came out. And people just, by the way, 5% of them, heavy metal fans maybe, people were just going completely insane because... They just so are rooting for these boys to, to succeed. And for me, it's so like seeing them at Donington in 1982, 27 years later, as a result of the movie, they're coming back 27 years later to play a festival in front of 60,000 people. You know, and that's the proof is in the pudding. You know what I mean? Like how people are responding to these guys there. They're getting the shows that they've wanted. And since most everyone I imagine here is from, most of us are from the New York area. Here in New York, where where is it? Where might people people be able to see? Well, the I'll film? mention that there's a, a premiere April sixth at the Blender Theater where we're going to do that thing, the Anvil Experience, which is we're going to show the movie, and then the band's going to come out and do a really short set. But so we should stress that, as far as I know, unless you know something different, that's not open to the public or sh- extremely limited, limited tickets, in tickets yeah. to the public. However, shameless plug: if you listen to my radio show on Q104 Friday with these guys on the air. We will be giving away a ton of tickets, I just found out. So. And four, oh, That's perfect. And, and four days later also, um, on the 10th, you'll be able to see the movie. It'll be playing at the Angelica down the road and also at the AMC 42nd Street. So, you know, you can put your tickets ahead and we'll probably be there. So, you know, hopefully Jericho's going to kick some ass and get people out there, right, Jericho? He's going to stand in front <laughs> He's like, stop. Anvilmovie.com stop. is the website to keep up with Anvil everything movie. going on. But we have one giveaway. I've got to say that Random House has bought the book, Anvil, the story of Anvil. And we have a single copy of the book that we wanted to give away this afternoon to a real Anvil fan. And these guys had a question. And so if you can answer this question, you get Anvil books signed by Anvil. What is the question? What is the question? Let me think now. Uh, who produced... Uh, our two classic albums and our most recent CD. You are a winner, sir. You are a winner. Dude, look at that, man. Also, uh, we've got uh, three T-shirts and about a dozen CDs to sell in case you want one. I love it. Three. That's right. The version I have is in the hardcover, though. What's going on there? I don't have that one. Do you want the hardcover? You go. Uh, okay, any more questions? Right in the way back corner there. Shout it out, please. Yeah, I have a comment. It wasn't a question. I'd personally like to thank you guys for sticking together for uh, all this Thanks, man. Thank you. Thanks a lot, brother. Gentlemen, right on the end here. Go ahead. Uh, 
Not three hundred fifty thousand. Editing. Hours. Uh, I, just to repeat for everybody, he wanted to know. He asked, directed to Sasha, obviously, the editing process of the film. The editing process was incredibly complex. We began editing a year into shooting. We shot for just over two years. A year into it, we started putting our editorial team together. We hired an amazing guy called Jeff Renfro, who was fantastic, who knew the band. He was from Toronto, friends with our cameraman. He began to shape it. And, you know, we went through many incarnations of the film. And uh, we had, I think, a pretty decent movie. And then um, we, we invited this guy called Andrew Dickler, who had worked with Chris Guest, actually, on Best in Show and Guffman and a few of his other movies and had worked, actually, with Rob Reiner, too. And um, he came in and just, you know, we started getting into it. And we... Listen, you know, as a director, you have your favorite things, and it's really good to have a strong voice in the room who's saying, you know what, we need to kill that. You, can, you, know, you have to kill all your darlings. So at the gradual, we went through this gradual process of letting it go to the point where it just became a really tight, disciplined movie, um, and I had to let go of a lot of things, but always in, in the greater service of the story. So it was a tough process. I mean, it was a year and two months of editing. We did it all at my house. You know, we did it all on my dining room table. You know, the whole movie was homemade. We shot it on Sony Z1U um, cameras. We shot it on prosumer cameras. Sometimes we used Vericam and Steadicam in Japan and stuff. So we did have a sort of a wide range of different sort of formats that we were using. But in terms of editing, technically that was also a problem because you're inputting into the Avid multiple different formats, which, you know, when you're outputting and going to film can be kind of complex and we had a lot of technical issues so for any of you young filmmakers out there who are going to do a documentary make sure that the way you set up your editing is really coherent at the beginning because the way you build the foundation of the film absolutely will affect you later when you're when you're you know putting it out to film and stuff um, but what I was going to say is it was really tough but we screened it man and we had test screenings for small groups of people and we had to take out some amazing stuff that will appear on the DVD, but I think we're all pretty pleased with the end result, right? I mean, you saw Lips was coming to the house pretty much every month, looking at stuff, and I mean, you, what, you know, you, what was your opinion of the editing? You saw it from the outside. It, it, it was quite unbelievable because there were, I mean, there were some some things. Um, you, you feel, oh, geez, you know, he'd call me a week later and go, you know, that section, this, that, we're gonna have to pull it. And I go, oh my God. Well, what kind of effect is that going to have? And you kind of, you, you, you have this sense of loss and you, you don't know how to really deal with it or whether you have to deal with it. But then when I'd come back after he'd pulled it, you don't even miss it. And you're going, wow, that's really magic. I didn't even notice it missing now. So it was actually really the, the weeding out of un, not really, it's just uninteresting glitches, uh, stuff that just didn't make it flow the right way. I, I mean, you know what was, was interesting? We also, had, we also had an advisory board where I had my kind of key sort of guys who was my first film as a director and as I'm sure many directors know, you know, you really need the support of other directors, you know, in the process to, to, to make it work. So we were fortunate and then we just had some amazing people and we had like a group of like eight people you know, four of whom had won Academy Awards for, for directing and writing, you know. And so because we had such a great brain trust, it really, like, whenever I was uncertain about something, I would put it out to this group of people, and they were just fantastic, you know what I mean? They were, you know, if you're a young filmmaker and you want to make a movie, it's kind of scary because, you know, it could be a total disaster. <laughs> you just don't know, right? So it's always important to have support around you, hopefully people who know what they're doing, but also just generally support from kind of friends is really, really important. Do it in a community atmosphere and you have a far greater chance of both seeing things clearly and also getting the results that you want. Sounds like it's a safe bet to say we'll see a lot of extra stuff on the DVD. 
Uh, yeah, about 16 to 18 hours. <laughs> Look for the box set coming yeah, out. It comes in a small trailer when you buy the DVD. Yeah. <laughs> I'm being told we have time for two more questions. So, uh, sir, standing right in the back, right in the center, and then we'll get one more. Go ahead. He want, he, uh, the gentleman who, who asked the question has never heard of the band or the film. He just happened to be in the store, saw the clips, likes what he's seeing, likes what he's hearing, and wanted to know if, if Lips and or Rob ever had any ambitions now to get into any sort of acting. Uh, no, we've never auditioned for anything, but maybe the movie will act as one. <laughs> I wouldn't mind being in Pirates of Caribbean. Yeah, he, yeah he, he, he wouldn't actually have to change, which is fantastic. Rob, how about you? Any uh, any desires to be on the big screen again in some capacity? Um, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> sure, maybe whatever. I think the point about it, though, is is that I understand where you're coming from with that sentiment, but what's remarkable about it and is that there you've never acted because what we're seeing on screen isn't acting. It's yeah, you, you see, being you. I'm not, this is this is not a case of I'm going to walk off the movies movies the movie set and leave the character there. I, I, the character goes with me wherever I go. <laughs> Let's get another question. Who else? Okay, sir, go ahead. I've always wanted to play a band with Rob Reiner, and I was curious to know where you came up with the distinctive double bass that inspired my whole neighborhood. Oh, my God, what a great... Okay, he wants awesome. to know, uh, giving props deservedly to the great Rob Reiner, who in a lot of ways... Uh, I think is one of the, the people in f who, who really is responsible for the birth of thrash metal, too, in, in the way he plays drums. And the gentleman asking the question wanted to know uh, how Rob came up with his double bass technique. Um, lots of practicing. Uh, a technique called uh, hovercrafting with your feet. It's my own uh, thing. And um, Awesome. Some good uh, medicinal enhancement. <laughs> a bag of weed, baby. Was there a drummer, Rob? I mean, I know in the film you said you listened to Cactus a lot, which was Carmine Apiece. Was there, were there drummers, uh, two or three specific drummers that influenced your style? Well, I, uh, I borrowed uh, a lot of things from a lot of great drummers. You know, Buddy Rich was my, probably is my favorite drummer. Uh, there's nobody that plays uh, tap dances on a snare like that, man. Uh, I love Ginger Baker. Uh, Ian Pace, you know, all the old school guys. I kind of like uh, borrowed a little bit from everybody and made my own little thing out of it, I think. But people who don't know, I mean, Rob Reiner, you're in the room now with truly one of the greats of, of heavy metal drumming, of rock drumming. Uh, when we interviewed Lars Ulrich of Metallica for the movie, you know, first of all, his assistant said, you guys have got like five minutes, you know, like 11 other interviews. And we show up and we sit down and, and he just went off for half an hour literally about Anvil, and most of the time was spent talking about Rob Ryan, and you'll see it on the DVD, and what Lars said was, you know, what Ian Pace of Deep Purple was doing in the late 60s and, and 70s, Reiner was just as significant in terms of rock and heavy metal drumming in the early 80s, and it was, I mean, to hear Lars go on about this, and you'll see it on the DVD, he's getting props from, you know, the, 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 the really big people, and it's just so nice, you know, to, to see him getting the acclaim and the acknowledgement and the respect that you have to understand that um, I'm a drum fanatic. I love drumming. 
I mean, that, that's probably why Rob loves to play with me because I love to write songs that really, really bring out the best in what he does. And when we first, when we, as young kids, we discovered when I played really, really fast staccato stuff, he said, hey, let me, starts doing this while I'm going like this. So it's going, and you get with the bass drums. It's like, listen to that, what's that? Hey, we'll call this song Pussy Poison. And that was like one of our first speed metal songs. And you know, this is, this is uh, it's a great thing. <laughs> Actually, we're uh, out of time, yeah. are we done, sir? <laughs> I, I think I think we are uh, we're done. I, I'm getting the sign there. So uh, I guess just in closing, thank you guys all for coming. Yeah, we thanks appreciate for coming, it. Really. And thank also you. come see the movie April 10th, the Angelica and the AMC. Anvilmovie.com. You can see as this whole thing rolls out, and then obviously there will be a DVD release. And uh, also happy to say that the film then down the line will be seen prominently on both VH1 and VH1 Classics. So. You're going to have a lot of opportunities to see this movie. But please go see it in the theaters because that is the best way to see it, no question, cranked up on a screen with a good sound system and stuff. And uh, guys, congratulations, Sasha. Brilliant film. And Thanks. congratulations Thanks, uh, Thank you, on Trunk. 30-year overnight success story, Anvil, folks. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Friday night on Q104, they'll all be on if you want to tune in at 11. Friday. And we'll be giving tickets away uh, to the special premiere here in New York where they'll be playing afterwards and that's pretty much the only way you can get in. So good luck on trying to win those uh, tickets and the guys will be around uh, doing stuff all over the place in the next few weeks so make sure you check them out and support this because it really truly is special and long overdue. Thanks for coming. Thank you everyone. That Metal Show, 11 o'clock, VH1 Classic featuring Anvil. <laughs>